It's so good to see you guys' shining, smiling faces. Um, something I want to say about worship. I was sitting there worshiping, and I feel, and I'm sure some of you feel like this, sometimes there's such a drastic shift from like vision Sunday, gathering Sunday, when it's not unlikely that you might see somebody just running in a full circle in the service. And then here, right now, we were more contemplative today. And so I was like, Lord, what are you doing? What's going on? And I felt very encouraged that the Lord was still here this morning, that his presence was here and it was ministering to people and it was talking to people and connecting with them. And so it just like encouraged and challenged me like, don't get lost in what you think it should look like. I'm doing stuff. And I was like, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay. So, um, man, you guys carry the presence of the Lord. And I just wanted to affirm that in you. All right. Amen. So I get the privilege of continuing our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. I did not know a lot about Ezra and Nehemiah before starting this journey because I don't really spend a lot of time there. It's not like my number one, oh, you know what I'm gonna do today, Ezra and Nehemiah kind of book. But I have learned so much from spending time in these short books. And I wanna share some of the things that I have. As always, uh, Jesus knows way more about this than I do. He was actually there. So I'm gonna ask him to say things to you about what he did when he was there, because I wasn't there. Okay, so do that, Lord, and um, I'll just say what I think you're saying. All right, let me show you this cute picture I found on Etsy. Isn't that nice? I know, you guys are so excited like I am. Um, so this girl, some girl on Etsy makes charts and planners and calendars, and she also made a Bible chronology chart that's color-coded like millennial style, and that just oh, spoke to my soul. So if you guys were here last week, you remember um, that John did a phenomenal job preaching, super clear. He covered everything from uh, Genesis to Ezra in a short amount of time, and I wasn't lost. So he did an amazing job. But let me just recap for you. We know um, that we got our homeboy Abraham. The Lord changed his name from Abram to Abraham and then eventually made him into a nation. The nation was called Israel. The nation was led into slavery in Egypt and they stayed there for a good amount of time until, you know, Moses was like, uh, can we get out of here? And the Lord was like, yeah, I'll get you guys out. So they come out of slavery in Egypt. So that's Genesis, we in Exodus now. They come out of slavery in Egypt and the Lord through Moses and Joshua eventually lead the people to the land that he had promised them. So they're spending time in the promised land and they're here, but they are getting progressively more and more wicked while they're in the promised land. So we're in this green area where as things go on, you see the people get super wicked and judges, and then they ask for a king, and they do well, and then they become progressively worse over time. And during this time, the prophets start to warn them, like, hey, you guys keep acting up, and you're going to get sent in time out. You're going to get sent into exile. Stop worshiping other gods. Stop being oppressive towards the poor. Stop being idolatrous. Come back to the one who loves you, me. You can avoid exile, but they don't listen, and so they end up getting sent into exile. So the triangle at the top is the whole period of exile. And I felt like it was so cool to see all the things that were happening in exile. Um, I didn't realize, now it makes sense, but that Daniel 
and Shadrach, Meshach, and them were during the time of exile. They're deep into service to King Nebuchadnezzar, but they were exiles from their own country. And so eventually, the Lord fulfills his promises that Christine helped me learn at Franklin Avenue, that he was going to restore them. He'd send them into exile for a period of time, but he's going to restore them and return them to the land that he originally promised them. So Ezra is the beginning of that. We pick up right where he has returned these people to the land where he promised them. All right. I was assigned to preach Ezra chapters 1 through 6. So now we're going to read six chapters. Are you guys ready? Woo! No, we're not going to do that. You guys would just be really sad if we sat here and read six chapters. So we're not going to read six chapters all the way through. I'm going to summarize some parts, and then we're going to read through some smaller sections that are more palatable. This is such a side note. I hope Jake isn't offended by me um, saying this. But one time he was leading communion, and he took off too much bread, <laughs> and, he, and he had to, like, eat it and like keep his composure while he was talking to you guys. And he was like, I was just trying not to choke because it was so much bread. <laughs> and so I'm not gonna do that to you guys today. I'm not gonna break off so much bread that you feel like I wish I had water because this is too much. All right, so we're gonna talk about Ezra 1 through 6. And you should also keep in mind as we're preaching the Old Testament or the New Testament that the Bible is one continuous story. It is Jesus' story from beginning to end. So this fits in a historical context and it's in the context of our lives and it fits in the context of Jesus' story from beginning to end. So don't just read this one excerpt and feel like it's its own thing. It's a part of the story. Just like you didn't start your life at your 40s. You started at your first and you moved to your 40s. Okay? Makes sense. All right, so let's start in chapter one. All right, chapter one. There's a guy, his name is King Cyrus. I should have already turned to this book, but I didn't. So just wait while I flip pages. All right, there's this guy, his name is King Cyrus. And he feels impressed by the Lord to make a decree for Israel to rebuild the temple. So it says this, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the, oh, I'm from the South. Let me just say that. I'm going to mess up these people's names. I'm going to talk about Zerubbabel a lot. Some people call him Zerubbabel. I don't know how this man's name is pronounced, so let's just all pretend like we know together. Okay. In the first year of the King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout the kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild the temple of the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Whenever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute towards their expenses by giving them silver and gold supplies for the journey and livestock as a voluntary offering to the temple of the Lord God. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. All right? So Cyrus gives them this decree, go rebuild the temple. Then chapter one is a list of like everybody and their mom who came out of exile to go rebuild the temple. And this is so-and-so from the land of so-and-so. This is somebody's mama from the land of so-and-so. It's, it's a lot of names. You can go back and learn the family tree. But let me just tell you, in total, 
we get to the end of chapter two, it was 42,360 people, not including any of their, ser any of their servants, which I think was like another 7,000 people. So this isn't like my family moved from Aliquippa the city to Beaver County or to Beaver City. That's not this. This is 42,000 people got sent somewhere else and came back. And this includes some of the wives that they got while they were in captivity, their family, all those different things. This is a massive amount of people who are coming to rebuild this temple and to restart their lives in the promised land. You should also know some context that not everybody was sent into exile. There were some Jewish people that stayed behind. And I think if I'm reading this correctly, it said that some of the poorest people were the people who stayed behind. So you had to be, I don't know, rich enough to be exiled. That's, that's crazy. But I guess that's what ended up happening. So there were people who stayed behind who were Jewish and people who left for 70 years to be exiled. All right, these are, we're gonna talk about now the main two sections that I want you to be paying attention to as I tell you this story. All right, Ezra 3, one through four. It says, in early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, oh, okay, let's read it from here. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of that guy, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of the other people, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel, the altar to God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles which, uh, with the required number of burnt offerings as prescribed for each day. All right, so that's the first section. Then it goes on to name more people and more things that people did and, and names of people that I'm not going to read today. Then we pick up after they built the altar in, chapter, in verse 8. It says, in the second month of the second year, so the first year they built all the altars, second year now, in the second month of the second year after the arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of the guy, and Joshua, the son of the other guy, and the rest of the people, and the priests, and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendant of Wu, and the sons of this guy and the sons and the brothers and the Levites, all these people joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and trumpets and the Levites and the son of Asaphat with symbols took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of much weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Amen. That's the end of what you guys will have to read for a little while. So you can take a break. 
All right, I see two main problems in this text that I want you to pay attention to. The first one is the building of the temple and the altars. Now, in, in theory, there's nothing wrong with building a temple and an altar. I mean, unless you're building it to another God. Don't do that. That's bad. But, but if you're building it to our God, there's nothing like wrong inherently with building a temple or building the altars. And in Ezra 3, we hear that they build the altar and they build the foundation of the temple. They don't even finish it. They just build the foundation of the temple. And then there's all of this weeping and shouting for joy, so much so that it just sounds like a big noise and nobody can tell what's going on. So this is the rebuild of the temple after the first one was torn down. But I want us to compare it, because the Bible's so good at putting these parallel comparisons in, that I want us to compare this to the first time that the temple was built. So this is in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. All right, so what had been happening before this part that I'm about to read, Solomon first builds, this is King Solomon, Solomon first builds his own place that he's going to live, and then after that, it goes on for like 51 verses of all the gold, the silver, the metals, the bronze, every artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, the, temp, the um, tablets, the staff that but every art, article of the Lord, every gold piece, all the things that uh, Solomon used to build this temple. It goes on for 51 verses to describe all the things that he put into this temple. It was absolutely stunning. I mean, really, really gorgeous. And it talks about how they laid the wood, how they mixed the metal. They did a lot of things here. It was a beautiful temple. And it was sad when it was destroyed because of how glorious it was. And so the section that we're going to read is Solomon dedicating this part of the temple. The priests go in to offer praises and sacrifices and things to the Lord. And then in verse 10, it says, When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. For the glorious presence of the Lord had filled the temple. Isn't that crazy? The presence of the Lord was so thick in this temple that it looked like a cloud had come. And the priests who were going to talk to the people could not even continue to minister. Can you imagine us up here and Jim is playing the drums and Gracie Baker singing and Jake is singing and then a cloud descends and we can't even play. We can't even sing. We can't do anything. We just have to fully stop. That is what happened at the first dedication of this temple. And the people began to worship the Lord. And then Solomon makes this decree and dedicates this place to the Lord. This place in which the Lord has descended. If I wasn't sure that I was doing the right thing before that, when I built the temple, oh, I'm sure now. When you come in looking like a rain cloud, I feel like I'm doing something right. Now let's compare that to what just happened in Ezra. Same thing, they build the altar, they go to make the sacrifices, they build the foundation, and the king Zerubbabel is getting ready to make the dedication. He dedicates the temple and nothing. The Lord does not descend. The people who saw the previous experience are just weeping. Because they know, one, I saw God descend so heavily that people couldn't even stand up and speak to me. 
and the temple was so beautiful and it felt like we were prospering in the land, all this stuff. And now look, look what we have now. The people are just weeping. And half of them who hadn't seen the other temple are like, yay, we did something. It's so beautiful. We made a foundation. Oh. And it's all mixed in there together. And so this, this becomes, for me, I think, a problem. Not that they built the temple, but there's something in how the temple was built that the Lord does not descend. And that's something that's so significant to pay attention to. Because if you're building something and he doesn't descend in it, what does that mean about what you're building? That's a question that you have to ask. You have to seek the Lord about the answer to that. Because it could mean that you put the stone in the wrong place, move the stone two centimeters, and here I come. Or it could mean something totally different. So this would have been a great moment for the Israelites to stop and reflect. For the old people in their wisdom and in their weeping to say, can we stop and reflect? I don't feel the Lord here. I don't see him here. Is he here? God, are you here? What have we done? Like, to ask some questions, but the Bible doesn't say that they did that. So that's one main problem that doesn't have a resolution yet. We haven't talked about it yet. Second problem. We didn't read Ezra 4, so let's read a little bit of Ezra 4. Ezra 4 says, the enemies, these are air quotes, not bunny ears, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard the exiles were building the temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King woo, of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, you may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as the king Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. So here the scripture says that the enemies of the Israelites came and they asked could they build the temple because they worshiped the Lord and the people said no we're going to be the only ones that build the temple just like our king told us we're going to do it we are the only ones who get to play with this ball it's our ball and I was so confused about why the Bible calls them enemies they say they worship the same God like why are they the enemies of the Israelites I didn't understand it um, so I asked the Lord and then I called Steve and I was like Steve can you tell me why they are enemies I don't understand and he was like um, Zerubbabel perceives them as enemies but that doesn't mean that they're actually enemies this is a perception of these people and I was like okay this is the beginning of a journey for me so then I started looking at commentaries, watching videos, reading, doing more search, research, reading what people have said who are smarter than me. And it, I figured out, or I came to after some research, that the enemies of Israel, these are actually Samaritans. They're Samaritan people. And Samaritans are fully Jewish, just like the Israelites are fully Jewish. There is no lineage distinction between these people. They're fully Jewish. So how come they call them enemies? Well, after doing some more research, I discovered that at some point in biblical history, they disagreed about where worship should happen. The Samaritans thought that the worship should happen on a holy mountain, and the Israelites thought that worship should happen in Jerusalem. So they argued about it, and eventually they argued so much that they split up and became two separate people. The Samaritans, who are Jewish people who think we should worship over here, and the Jews who think we should worship in Jerusalem. And that 
argument continued all the way up into Ezra. And now these people who were once my brothers and sisters, like this is like me arguing with my cousins. Now they're my enemies because they feel differently about where we should put the church. And it's come to the place that when they ask, can we share in building this temple with you? I don't even, no, we're not going to make the Samaritans sound like they're so great. Maybe they were messy. Maybe their intention was to be messy with the temple. But they asked, can I come and build this temple with you? And the Jews at the time, the Israelites were like, no, you're not invited. We're the only ones. We have the true place that worship should be happening. So you're not invited to come worship with us. This becomes a problem for a couple of different reasons, and I have them written up there. First, that little moment of dissension delays the building of the temple for 17 years. The Samaritan people after that talk to another king and they say, this city that they're going to build is so messy. You should make sure that it's torn down. You're not going to get your money if they build this city. You better make sure that they don't build this temple. And the king is like, oh my gosh, you're right. What am I going to do without my money? And so he sends a decree out that nobody is allowed to work on this. And if you do, you're going to die. So then they have to like contend with that for a little while and try not to die. So they don't build the temple. And it takes 17 years for another king to rise up and to reissue a decree for them to be able to finish building the temple. So that's a problem. If you start building my house and it takes you 17 years to finish, maybe I should have hired a different builder. I feel frustrated. That's not okay. That's the first problem. Their dissension takes the project and extends it by 17 years. The second problem is they finally get the temple built, and that's the rest of the chapters. Five through six is the process of them finally getting the temple built, and at the end, the people are celebrating, and they're so excited, and the Lord had actually made their hearts glad, but the Lord still doesn't descend. There's still no evidence that he comes and validates this thing that they built. So they did all this for 17 years for the Lord to not come. And these are massive problems for them. And this is where Zerubbabel finds himself right before the, the leader Ezra comes to take up his part in the story. And I feel, I feel for Zerubbabel because they were in exile for 70 years. He is the first leader back since exile, all right? We all got in trouble for 70 years. We had to pay the price for not worshiping the Lord. Okay, we're finally back. If I am the first leader of this transition, I don't want to be the one who's going to mess it up. I don't, don't want to be the leader who gets us sent back into exile. Okay, it's not going to be me. Maybe, maybe the next leader will, but it's not going to be me. So I can understand why when he comes into this new land that he's received, his intention is to build everything the same way that it was before. Only these Jews who are so correctly Jewish can build. Only the temple will be built in this way. It will be built like it was before with the resources that we have. We'll say the same words that we said back then and we're going to hope that the Lord descends because I want to get everything right just like I did before. It feels like that's kind of the place that Zerubbabel is in. And I understand that because transition will kind of put you in that place. But what happens is the Lord doesn't come. And that's when you got to start asking the questions. So I want to turn your attention to how Jesus and his fabulousness rectifies all of these issues. First, let's read some of John 4. I won't make you read all of it. 
But John 4 and um, 19 is where I want to start. Are you guys familiar what happened to John 4? Does anybody know what happens to John 4? Yes, Christine, you get five points. The woman at the well is the story in John 4. This is Jesus. You guys are familiar with the story. Jesus goes up to this well. He's super thirsty. There's a Samaritan woman there. And she's drawing water all by herself for various reasons that the Bible doesn't mention. But she's there all by herself drawing water. Jesus asks her, hey, can you give me something to drink? And she's like, why are you talking to me? You are Jewish and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you speaking to me? Jews don't have anything to do with these people. And he says, well, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask me to give you living water and I would give you water and you would never be thirsty again. And she says, you don't got a bucket. Where are you, where are you gonna get the water from? And he says, some other things to her that I can't remember in this moment, but essentially she says, go get your husband, tell him to come and I'm gonna give you this water. She asks for the water, that's what happened. She asks for the water and he says, go get your husband, come back with your husband and I'll give you guys the water. She's like, I don't have a husband. He says, I know you have had lots of husbands and the guy you're with is not even your husband. So she's like, okay, you must be some kind of prophet guy since you wanna tell me all my business. And this part that I want to pick up on is so beautiful. I never saw this before I was studying Ezra. But it was so good to notice. Then she says, Yep, then she says to him, Sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Do you see how long the period is of time? This is, Ezra and Nehemiah have died. There have been 400 years of silence and now we're in the New Testament. And this Samaritan woman is still saying, you guys think we should worship over there. I think we should worship over here. Why are you talking to me? The feud is still happening. The people are still divided to the degree that they were divided before. And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, a time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we, know, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, and indeed is here now, where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must also worship him in spirit. Bless you. I never thought about this like this, but do you see in this moment, he takes this feud that's been hundreds of years long and just rectifies it in himself in that moment. A time is coming when you're not gonna wonder about if she should worship in Jerusalem or over here, if she should be on top of the hill or if you should be at the bottom of the hill or if you should be in Hopewell or if you should be, a time is coming where the spirit of God is gonna cause you to worship in spirit and in truth as one people. This is the beginning of him starting to break down all of these divisions. So you see the division come up in Ezra and you see God rectify that through Jesus in John 4. The next part that he rectifies is John 2. John had a lot to do with talking about Jesus saving all these things. Maybe John had some powerful revelations. Oh, he wrote revelations, so I guess, I guess he did. That wasn't an intentional pun. It just came to me. All right. 
John 2, uh, this is Jesus after he's gotten everybody good wine. Then he goes to the temple and people are being super evil in the temple. They are selling the sacrifice things in the temple. It's just so messy. Can you imagine like walking in a church and we're selling the bulletins? <laughs> that's, that's messy. You shouldn't come to our church if we're selling you the bulletins. But that's what's happening here. They're selling these items that you need for worship. And Jesus, you know, comes in with the whip, kicks them all out for turning his house into a money changer's den. And then they get really upset with him. And they say, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign and prove it to us. How dare you kick us out? And Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple and I'm gonna raise it up in three days. Now he uses the word temple and the people are super confused and they say, it took us 57 years to build this temple. What do you mean you're gonna do it in three days? What kind of magic carpet? I know your dad was a carpenter, I know you're a carpenter, but what kind of magic carpentry are you about to do so that you can rebuild this temple in three days? And the Bible goes on to say that they don't understand, but then when Jesus died and was raised in three days, they remembered this scripture. That's what John goes in to say. And so he first redeems the idea of worship. And then here in John, he redeems this idea of the temple by becoming the temple himself. And when he dies and takes this body into ruin, it, it mirrors, it echoes the same ruin that the temple has been through all these different years. Every time it was torn down by its enemies, every time it was laid bare, every time it was put into rubble, Jesus takes all of that onto himself when his body is broken and put into the ground. Tomb. But then he redeems that whole story by becoming the temple and then raising up from the grave temple might also be resurrected just like Jesus is resurrected. He fully completes that story and then he says, I will put my spirit within you and you will become the temple. So we are in him and he is the temple, so we are also the temple. He fully redeems this temple story here in this moment. And continue, you can read it in the other gospels too. God is fulfilling this thing that he said he was going to do. And then in Revelation, we get the not yet part of the story because we're very much a church that believes in the now and the not yet. Christine had this picture of some mountains and it was like we can look back on the past mountains and say, oh, that's how God did it. And we can look back, we can look forward and say, there are things that we see that aren't fully fulfilled. Revelation is one of the books that we read and we say, okay, there are still some things to come. It's not fully fulfilled yet, but we hope for it. So Revelations 21 and 22, this is John's account of seeing heaven. This is after he sees the city with gold streets and the stones that are precious like concrete and all the apostles and the found. This is after he has seen all this beauty and glory. He says, and I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all of their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night. The nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry, dishonesty, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
So he first resurrects the temple and his body on earth, but then we see this picture of Jesus becoming the temple in this new heaven that he's built. And I was listening to a commentary by a guy who was on John Piper's team, and he was saying that the dimensions that John saw are a cube. They're a perfect square in heaven in this moment of Revelations. So the only other time that reference a cube being in a, a temple is the holies of holies. That's the only other cube. And that was a place that priests could only go if they were super clean and they had done all the things right and they made all the sacrifices and one time a year they go into this place of holies of holies. But now we see Jesus is the temple and it's the same square, which means I've invited everybody into the holies of holies. There's no divisional space anymore. All of you come in and be in the holy of holies with me. That's what he's saying here. Not only did I finish and fulfill this on earth, but when I raise you all up with me, you're all gonna be in the holies of holies with me. All right. Does that make sense? Great. So that's some, some deep biblical lore. That is some deep, like Jesus fulfilling all of the stuff lore. Lore means story. This is true. So take that with a grain of salt. It's beautiful to talk about Ezra, but I want to talk about what this means for us because we are not in Jerusalem. I don't know if it snows in Jerusalem, but the snow is coming here. So we're not there. So what does this mean for the tab? And why are we talking about this? Um, two really small points. One, Jesus entered the messiness and used it to fulfill his promises. The messiness is Jesus not descending in the temple that they built and the people becoming more wicked and eventually leading to 400 years of silence. All that stuff is messiness. It's not so great, but Jesus used this messiness to fulfill the promises. Can I tell you a story? Okay, because I didn't get to tell too many personal stories. This was a lot to cover, so I didn't get to get into all the stories. But let me tell you this one story that I think is pretty funny. All right, I have a 12-year-old brother. And um, don't do the math on the age difference between he and I. Just keep, stay with me. Stay with me, right? Okay. I have a 12-year-old brother, right? And when he was like 11, which was last year, or year before, 11, 10, he figured out how to make pineapple upside-down cake which is a lot for like a 10-year-old. I'm like, sir, you, you get five points for Christine. You did a great job. So he makes pineapple upside down cake and he has worked on this recipe so much that it is a perfected recipe. Like people, when we make family desserts for Thanksgiving, you know, you have like, my grandpa makes like a lemon meringue kind of pie. My mom makes sweet potato pie. And Destin, my brother, now has a signature dish. It is this upside down cake with pineapples in it. He would make it to the cookie table if he was here. It wouldn't be a cookie, but you understand the level of, I don't know, mm, that he's reached, all right? However, uh, he didn't start there. I remember when he was little, my family and I, when he was like three or four, we were so worried about him because we thought he was gonna be a sociopath. We thought he was gonna grow up to be an insane monster because he was just not very good at telling the truth. And he was not very good at feeling sorry for telling, for telling a lie. He would just lie and stare at you, like do something. And you're like, I, what should I do? I don't know what to do. St stop looking at me like that. You don't know how to feel. And so there was one time, my grandpa's birthday was coming up, and we got him a beautiful carrot half sheet cake for our family. It was like eight of us in the house. 
and we're gonna invite some people over. That's enough for a half sheet cake. So we have this beautiful carrot sheet cake. My mom goes to public, she gets it, she puts it on the counter in the middle of the day, and she's like, later on tonight, we're gonna come together and we're gonna sing happy birthday to you, grandpa. So go do your life, and then we'll come back later on and we're gonna sing happy birthday, right? So we all go through the rest of our lives, and then we come back later on that night, and the cake is completely missing. And everybody's looking around like, I know, I put a whole sheet cake on this counter. Those don't just, where is this cake? And so everybody is, we look crazy. We're looking around for a cake. I mean, it could only be two plates. It could be on the countertop. It could be in the refrigerator. It could be on the other counter. Like, where could a cake really be? But after we check those three places, it's not anywhere to be found. And so everybody, oh, I just lost Aaron. Everybody is looking for this cake. And we look for like 20 minutes. All seven of us, minus Destin, are running through the house looking for a whole cake. And we find in my room, in the closet, in the back, behind all the clothes, there is a sheet cake that has been flipped over and has small handprints all in it. And my brother, at this time, I don't know where he was, but at this time, he's like three or four, he comes around the corner, cake all on his hands, all in his face, in his hair, on his eyebrows. How you get cake in your eyebrows? I don't know. But he comes with this cake in his eyebrows and hands and face, and we look at him and we're like, did you take this cake? He said, no, no, I didn't take the cake. And we said, Destin, did you take the cake? And he's like, no, I didn't, I didn't take the cake. And we're like, you got cake on your face, it's on your hand, what do you mean you took the cake? And he's like, no, and he does not, he doesn't agree. First, I don't know why we were trying to make him agree. We knew he took the cake. That was poor parenting on our parts. But, I mean, we just are afraid that he's gonna be a liar forever. And so he took the cake, he didn't say anything about it. And eventually, 20 more minutes go by, and we say, okay, Destin, you're not gonna be in trouble. And we'll give you candy. Did you take this cake? And he says, yeah, mm-hmm, I took it. Why? I just want a cake. And we're just like, what? All you can do is laugh at that point. Because grandpa's birthday is just over. You don't get a cake? Do you even turn older if you don't get a cake for your birthday? I don't know, but his birthday totally ruined. So from that moment, we were like, man, Lord, help us not to raise a serial killer. Help us to raise a, a wonderful man. And I was thinking about that while I was prepping because that was a really low moment. In Destin's story, when he gets older, he's not, probably not gonna wanna look back on that moment of him stealing a whole birthday cake. But you don't get to phenomenal pineapple upside down cake if you don't start with first trying to figure out what this cake is. If you don't, you don't get to this place of beauty if you don't start with the messiness. And that felt so significant to me because this beautiful promise that we see from Jesus, where he fulfills the temple, he fulfills every sacrifice, he redeems, he raises from the dead, that's all beauty, but the messiness is what set this up for it to be beautiful. It's the messiness of these people crying out to God because they don't have a clue what they should be doing. Him not coming, then sometimes he does. It's this dance that they do that sets up these moments of resurrection and glory and makes them one that we, we celebrate. And that's the beauty of this whole story, that in all of our messiness, God takes it and he uses it and he makes it good. And so that's something I want us to consider moving into this last point that I really have. Um, we are going through some transition. Just like the Israelites are going through some transition. They're coming, hey guys, they're coming from exile into 
the promised land again. And they're transitioning from living in exile to not living in exile anymore. They don't know what to do, and we're in transition. We had a lead pastor, we don't right now. And if you skip the church's transition, a lot of us are in transition in our lives. We had pillars in our family, and they passed away. We lived in a house, and then we moved out of that house. We had a job, and then we lost that job. Or we changed to a new job. We were in high school, now we're not anymore. Whatever you are in transition, a lot of us right now are in a position of transition. And in transition, there is pain. There are several, um, as a therapist, there are several different areas where we like watch for people to become a little bit more um, depressed, self-harming. Transition is one of those places. Because it's so emotionally raw for people that they don't know what to do. And we are often in one of these places. And so I want to encourage us, just as Jesus has encouraged us, that in the pain of our transition, we don't revert back to what feels comfortable and miss what God is doing ahead. The people wanted to build the temple just like they had seen it, and follow the Lord just like they had followed him. But he was like, I'm doing something different. I'm connecting you to the people around you now. You're not gonna be the only ones. Israel's supposed to be the first, but never the only. Now I'm starting to bring the rest of the nations in. Do you see that I'm doing it? And it could feel so comfortable to just circle the wagons and come back to like what we know and get in like the pettiness of, laws and minutia and how people should be dressing and how people should be talking and I don't like that you wore your hair on the left side today. Don't do that. We can get into all of that because we don't know what to do. And the pain makes us want to reach for control. But here, the Lord is like, choose love and recognize that my faithfulness is going to do all of this in the messiness. So don't let the pain cause you to choose the law. Choose love. And then the second thing is, um, God is still doing stuff. He's still doing stuff with our transition. It might look different. I, I love when we get in here and we holler and we scream because I'm just a louder person in general. But just like in worship, God came and met us. He's doing, he's doing different stuff in us. He's still moving with us. He's still connected to us. So even if it looks different, we trust that the Lord is leading us. And he'll make all this stuff good. Amen? Amen. That's all I got to say. Thanks for listening. Yeah.